it is extremely difficult to do because you know when you're at the ground level and you're trying to build a customer base that initial that first hundred customers anyone who comes to you and wants to give you money for your product to turn them away at that point it takes so much being honest with yourself about where your product is and how it caters to that particular customer it, it takes a lot of honesty it takes a lot of discipline to do Welcome to Sass and Scotch. I'm TK, founder at Unstoppable. On this podcast, I talk about the two things I love the most, SaaS businesses and Lagavulin Scotch. On today's episode, we have Miles Grote joining us, Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder at Upper Hand. We'll be digging into his founder story and the incredible work he's doing at the intersection of SaaS and I want to say sports management. Miles, welcome to the show. Thank you, TK. Great to be here. So you're, if you're at Thanksgiving or you're at a family gathering and you have to explain to grandma what upper hand does, how do you explain it in plain, simple words? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. And it's, it's been multiple years of being able to craft this. So hopefully I don't, don't disappoint here, but essentially upper hand creates technological solutions for sports and fitness businesses to more fluidly manage their operations. So we really are a end-to-end tool of uh, our suite of tools to help them run their businesses more efficiently. I was checking out your website. I was looking at your founder story and I want to dig into like how you got into doing this. But one of the coolest things about SaaS is there's so many niche verticals. So when I was looking at yours, I was thinking about like, wow, like fitness management, sports management, like that's a very specific vertical. And last week I was looking into a company called Squire and they do similar things to what you guys do, operations and how do you run the business, except they only focus on barbershops and they mm -hmm. just raised a huge round. So I think it's one of the coolest things about SaaS on how you can get into such specific verticals and still build incredible businesses and massive businesses for that matter. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's definitely gone in that direction. I think like when it was the when it was like the wild west of, of the SaaS world, people started a lot more broad. But as time has gone on, I've been in the SaaS space since 2007. That was my first my first gig was in in SaaS and on the fintech side of things before there even was the term fintech. And it's just gotten more and more granular and more more and more uh, focused, which is awesome because you're able to deliver so much more extraordinary value to the end users when you're focused on a specific niche. So I think that it's, it's fun to, to really focus on a niche because you really have a, a specific core of, uh, core of problems that you're solving for, but it's definitely gone in that direction. I think it's going to keep on going in that direction. I'm definitely curious how it's going to, how the money's going to follow in that direction, because as you get more and more focused and in, in, in a specific niche, obviously the, the opportunity for these kind of extremely large venture capital exits diminishes a little bit, but it's, you know, I'm always curious about how that's going to end up playing out, but it's definitely gone that direction for a while now. I think that's definitely a struggle just even as a founder, right? It's like the more you niche down, the more likely you're to get to some product market fit. But at the same time, there's that nagging voice inside of you. I don't know if the TAM's big enough. I don't know if I'm yeah. short, short selling myself on the opportunity. 
And I don't know if the investors are going to understand it. That's like a recurring battle that I feel like goes on in every founder that's actively navigating the Shawshank crawl right now to product market fit. Oh yeah, that is, that's, and we heard that feedback so many times um, in investor pitches with venture capital. There is capital out there though, that they definitely looked for this, that, you know, niche, the niche plays are there. They've become more and more attractive over the years for venture capital, I think. I think they've become more and more attractive. I think also investors are realizing even for a niche in software, the TAM ends up being two to four X way bigger, way bigger than they yeah. anticipated. And, totally that, agree. and I think of more squires that you see, like they raised a few hundred million dollars just for barbershop SaaS. Wow. Like the more of that that you see, the more I think investors are like, oh my God, there's a lot of these kind of businesses. Mm -hmm. And for you guys, it seems that you started, you say sports and fitness business. So that means you probably started even more niche and slowly expanded. Yep. That's accurate. We actually, we started in the the sports space. And I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll give you the, the backdrop of how it all started. Kevin, my business partner, Kevin McCauley and I, we started a not-for-profit at Indiana University in Bloomington called Circle of Life. And as a part of that, we founded this scholarship, which at the time was the largest scholarship for cancer survivors in, in the, the world. And so we, we housed it at the IE Foundation. We started up as a fundraising vehicle, what is, what's now called the Hoosier Half Marathon, but at the time it was called the IE Mini Marathon. And so we used uh, that as a fundraising vehicle. It was the first ever collegiate hosted half marathon in the country back in 2000. And I want to say 2006 was the first year. We raised 192000 for the scholarship that year. So it was a wild success, but most importantly, or not most importantly, but a ancillary kind of um, benefit of that is Kevin and I have developed a really good relationship together, both as friends and professionally, we ended up going a different direction. We were roomed together in Chicago, straight out of school. He went in the marketing direction. I went into the SaaS direction for a company called FactSet. And we, uh, we remained good friends there. He went off to start a company with his brothers called ClassWatch, taking on the class ring space, which was an antiquated space that just never moved over the past 50 plus years. So they had a lot of success out of the gates, like partnered with companies like Tag Viewer, et cetera. And uh, they, they, were, they were actually allowed to deface the watches and then imprint IU's logo on there with some initials. You can customize it. It was like a watch configurator online. It's really cool. Actually, I, bought, I was one of their first customers. I bought a ClassWatch. So that was his first dip into the entrepreneurial world. He learned a lot of lessons working with his brothers, starting that company. He eventually left. They continue to, his brothers continue to run it. And then um, that's when all the ideas started to flow through to me, you know, because he's, he's your quintessential visionary. I'm your quintessential operator. And, and so my job is to shoot down 99% of those ideas. And, and then we, we find that 1%, we go for it. We, he came to me with this idea of a platform, a marketplace to connect private sports coaches with parents and athletes. Six months before I was plateauing in my own training for, for the Chicago marathon, couldn't really get past the, the Boston qualifier time of 310. And so I went to go look for a coach online. And so I, I searched for a marathon trainer, nothing came up, no central location for it. And at that point I was like, man, someone's going to do this. Fast forward six months, Kevin calls me with this crazy idea of building this marketplace. And I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm in like, you know, let's, let's start moonlighting. Let's figure this out. I put together a financial model. We did some market research, try to understand how big the market was wasted a bunch of time researching and not doing, uh, you know, big piece of advice there for founders, just get out there and do it, rip the bandaid off. Eventually we both went full-time on it. We launched book a coach. We were featured a mash bowl 2013. Um, during the two year period, or yeah, it was about a year and a half period, we, we tried to get, you know, that off the ground. There was a company called coach up in Boston that w was wildly successful. They went through Techstars um, accelerator program out in Boston, raised a ton of money from general catalyst. 
and really left us in the dust, to be honest with you. But it ended up being a good thing for us, you know, as a silver lining, because we had to get really specific and in, into our data to understand why this wasn't taking off. But we were also looking at the unit economics of just the customers that we did have come through. And we found that it was going that basically in this niche kind of marketplace, there was really the only going to be probably one winner. And in, even if when they do win, it's going to be really tough to turn a profit. You have to have really massive scale to do that. But we did find a subset of customers that kept on coming through and having their, their customers repeat purchase from them through our platform, which is like the, that's the, the holy grail of the marketplace. You get people coming back constantly and the unique economics get way better and lifetime value gets way better. And so we started doing customer discovery and we found that those particular, that particular segment of our customers were um, more established sports businesses. They, they had brick and mortar facilities and they were trying, they wanted to use us for more of a business management tool for online scheduling, online payments, some light CRM functionality, light retail functionality. And so we did some more discovery. We dressed up the market a little bit, figured out how big it was, if it was going to be something that we, it was worth pivoting to. And so in 2016 timeframe, we completely rebuilt the software and we launched in the beginning of 2017 as upper hand. Um, and you hit the nail on the head. We actually were focused solely on sports at that point. And within sports, we were even focused solely, like more, even more specific on um, specific sports that the, the product catered well to. We stayed away from golf and tennis. We actually, we don't, we, we, we don't actually go out and get caught, go out and aggressively go toward golf and tennis clubs even today. Uh, that's definitely accurate, but that's the backstory um, of how we founded it. I'm going all the way back to when, when Kevin and I first met. There's so many patterns there. One that I see so often is you needed a failing business idea to get to the great business idea. And oh, yeah. <laughs> which like, it's like, thank God that happened, which you wouldn't think you would be able to say. And then the other one that's actually really interesting is that you went super niche and then you earned the right to go broader and broader as you grew. And I think that's one of the things that founders know they could technically do, but they don't quite believe. And that holds them back from going niche. With, so maybe we, can we talk about that a little bit more? What was that like when you're like, let's get super specific into this very specific thing. And what was it like when, how'd you, when you could expand beyond that niche and what did that feel like? Let's talk about both of those. Cause I think that's so important for founders to realize that, that is something that happens proper when done properly. It is extremely difficult to do because you know, when you're at the ground level, uh, and you're trying to build a customer base, that initial, that first hundred customers, anyone who comes to you and wants to give you money for your product, to turn them away at that point, takes so much being honest with yourself about where your product is and how it caters to that particular customer. It, it takes a lot of honesty. It takes a lot of discipline to do. I, I'd be lying if I told you that we were extremely good at that <laughs> out of the gates. We were taking the bad customers. When I say bad, not that they were bad people. They were just bad fit, you know, yeah. for, for our product. And um, we, we did that constantly and we learned the hard way that, let me say this, it wasn't all bad because we did take those customers and we learned a lot about what they needed in order for it to fit. And yeah, our churn was high. They left us, maybe some left more frustrated than they should have. Maybe they were oversold a little bit, all, all that stuff. I'm sure it's a lot of people are probably shaking their heads. Like I'm doing that right now. It's okay. Cause you do learn a lot about your customers, but there's probably a better way to do it. Uh, a more frictionless way of doing that. Just be an organic kind of customer discovery, but it's really tough. I actually um, was reading, I'm reading a book that'll never work about the founding of Netflix by Mark Randolph. Great book. Totally. Yeah. Loved it. Have you read it before? I have. Yeah. I was a fan. It, 
it's a good one. It's an easy read. Uh, you know, it's well-written, but it talks about the, you know, the life of an idea, which I think is what we're talking about right now. And, uh, I, at one point he talks about the candidate principle where it's, you got Canada dangling over here on the side and they can have an immediate, they, they assessed it. They can have an immediate 10% bump in their revenue, but they didn't do it. They didn't bite on it because they knew that if they got out of being focused on their core, then it was ultimately going to slow them down. And they had the discipline to, to stay away from it. And it's the same principle with taking customers outside of like outside of your core and outside of your niche before you, like you said, earn that to, to go broad. Yeah, it's really tough, but I definitely encourage people to, if you're starting a business now and, and you got a product and you're, you've got people wanting to give you money, but if the product's not ready for it, uh, maybe pump the brakes a little bit. Cause I think there's a better way to yeah. work on those customers. It's that's, I think that's the right way to think about like, you fundamentally have to ask yourself, do we need to strengthen our core right now? Or is there room for expansion or time for expansion? So for mm -hmm. you guys, when you started to maybe go into your expand a slight bit on your ICP or go open up to maybe you start with sports and then went to fitness or how did you know the time was right to do that? How did that turn? How did that expansion turn out for you guys? So as head of product, I, you know, I've always played like a, a product manager role. So the way that I did it was I kind of slice and diced our, I think if you can segment your industry into different silos that make a lot of sense. And you, you look at the product features that are, you know, must haves for those particular segments. I think that you just, you have to look at that in order to understand when the timing, the other kind of strategy that we deployed deployed there was we like for the fitness sports example, uh, for like boutique fitness studio and a single use sports facility. Those are two segments we look at and they were keen on going after. I looked at the overlap of the must haves for both of those particular segments. And that's what we prioritized first to go after so that we could get to both of those particular segments quicker. So to know when the timing's right, I think you just got to be honest about what those must haves are and just really know your customers extremely well at that point. Cause if you don't know your customers and you don't know what they really need to have in order to have that product market fit within that segment, then you're going to, you're the timing, you're never going to figure out when the timing's going to be right. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the week we're recording this. I don't know when you'll be listening to it, but is when Jeff Bezos stepped down and Andy Jassy just took over. And I was yep. reading the story about how Andy Jassy originally started working with Bezos. And the story went as Bezos has always had a chief of staff, which is his body man. They just shadowed him. And later on, now they call him the shadow. Every meeting, every touch point, Andy Jassy was there. And one of the first projects that Bezos assigned to him was to figure out why their engineering projects around this project called merchant.com or something kept falling behind. Amazon was like, Hey, we're e-commerce. We want to help target do e-commerce. And Jassy went in, figured out that, Oh, this is the problem. They're repeating work on the same core stuff. So that's when they started to do that whole movement around let's do core components. And then at an offsite at Bezos's house, Jassy was like, came back and said, hey, we should expand into making these core components available to outside companies. And that's how Amazon Web Services was born. And that's how he became CEO of it. And now he's going to be CEO of Amazon like 10 years later. Yeah. And it, it went to show even at that time, it wasn't an obvious decision for Amazon and Bezos to say, yeah, we're going to expand into AWS instead mm -hmm. of just being the best e-commerce company ever. But they, they, they made a leadership decision expand. And I think that's, it's a tough leadership call all the time 
to make that call. But, and sometimes it pays off in dividends like AWS did, and sometimes it doesn't. And you got to make yeah. that call, but you have to make a conscious call, I think is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think there's no like, there's no playbook, right? Especially when you're pioneering an industry or you don't even have to be pioneering it if you're just building a better mess, mousetrap. I mean, there's no clear cut playbook. This is how it needs to play out in order for you to succeed. Yeah, there's got to be judgment call there. You got to trust your gut and, and listen to your customers because they're, they, they know what they need. They know what they don't need, especially when you're building a product from scratch. I think as you get more functionality and you get better product market fit, that's where you start to have to deviate a little bit from what your customers are really like telling you that they need. I mean, I'm big on look at the problems and then solve those problems versus, Hey, I want this feature. If you're a product manager that like that's critical, but uh, I think that as time goes on, the product starts, uh, keeps on getting more and more product market fit. Like it, it becomes uh, a little bit more difficult, but yeah, trust your gut in that decision and probably earlier, the better, honestly. That's what I liked about your answer where, you know, you looked at some market segments, you looked at the data, you looked at the overlaps, and then you made the gut, you were like, okay, we're going to do this. And I think that makes a big difference. So tell me a little bit around what's the stage of the business with upper hand. What are you guys focused on now? What's the next stage look like? What's, what's top of mind as you're leading the company today? Yeah. Top of mind is where, like, where is the fitness industry going to land? Cause it's a big portion of just our, you know, total addressable market COVID, you know, really decimated the fitness side of things, particularly boutique fitness studios, where the whole business model is to stuff as many uh, human beings into as small of a space as possible. That's the model. And that model doesn't really jive well with, uh, with the global pandemic. It's I'm watching that pretty keenly to, to see where, where the cards fall there. Connected fitness, Pelotons of the world. Ergatas that are pioneering gamification with, with fitness equipment. Those are really interesting to me just from a broad level of like how con connected fitness is going to continue to prevail. I think it's got a lot, a long road to run, but I still think that there's like a huge, huge need and, and a huge want from consumers to still go to these classes that people we're human beings. Uh, most human beings uh, were wired to want to be around other people for survival. I mean, that's really what it comes down to and participating in these group classes and stuff like that type of, you know, tribalism, if you will, it's never going away. And so you can do that through Peloton. You can do that through some of these other products, but it's just not the same as like being there in person. But in terms of stage of, of growth for us, I mean, we are very much in kind of a scale up mode and we've been we use the past year as things uh, slowed down on the fitness side. Most of our exposures on, on the sports side, which honestly didn't really change much. We saw a huge dip the first couple of months uh, or yeah, first probably month and a half of COVID, but we were back. It very much was a V-shaped recovery in terms of product activity wow. within, a, within a two month period for us. And so, you know, that, is that like sports teams? Is that the best way to think about it or? It's a good question. It's like the sports teams is, is more of a segment that I would say that we actually don't have team and league functionality. So that's a place that we, we turn money away from right now, just because we don't have product market fit for it. But, uh, but yeah, like a sports training facility, but you take your kid to go to a batting cage or something like that, that that's one of our, our core customers. So yeah, sports world is very much intact, but we're definitely in, in scale up mode, use the past year to really fine tune the product, pay down some technical debt and get ready to, to scale. Cause we, we were confident things were going to come back and, and they, they have started to come back pretty nicely. Yeah. One of the things we talk about on this podcast a lot is great SaaS businesses essentially have three pillars. There's market, there's product, and there's go to market and at different stages of the business. You're building up different muscles. So for you guys, it sounds definitely like 
the go-to-market on like, how do we know the market? We know the product. How do we actually aggressively go into it? Does that sound right? Or like, how do you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've spent the, the past couple of years really working on product market fit. The, the problems that these facilities have, like with the resource scheduling, overlapping with instructor availability, overlapping with the facility availability, taking payments, all individually as their own kind of silo, those are solved problems. Yeah. Um, within the industry using so different software or different hardware. But when you combine them all together, it makes it extremely challenging to have them all talk together and, and to solve all of these problems. That, that's where it's become really difficult or it's been a very big, big, difficult problem for us to do over the past couple of years. So getting to product market fit, this is my first startup. So I don't really have anything to really compare it to but it feels a lot harder than I think some of the other, my, my other cohorts at other companies, maybe they would say the same. Maybe they pointed at me like, oh man, he's got it easy over there, but it's been a really, it's been, it's taken us a while to, to get there. Even with talking to customers daily uh, and listening to their feedback and understanding the market really well, it's just been, it's been really like you were talking about the, the Shawshank crawl without a doubt it's been there, but we're, we're there in terms of product market fit. And we're excited to start scaling the business up um, significantly yeah. in the next couple of years. So as your co-founder, you're also the product leader. How do you think about one of the big things that's a theme in the SaaS space, particularly is product led growth. How do you think about the roadmap? Are you thinking about features to help drive growth or help drive go-to-market? Does that come across your roadmap at all? Do you think about that? 100%. It's one of the things I think about when I'm going to sleep at night, when I'm waking up in the morning is how do you shift a company from, and we're small enough to do it probably a lot easier than some of these bigger companies, but how do you shift a company from a traditional kind of sales growth organization to a product-led growth organization? I've got ideas of, of how to do that and a roadmap in my head of how to do that, but it's something that if, if I'm starting a company now, that's probably one of the first things that I'm going to pick up as a product leader is understanding product-led growth and building my product with that in mind. Slack is an amazing example of that. They've done an incredible job. I don't think I've ever talked to anyone from Slack ever in my life, whether it be through email or over the phone, their product is just easy to use and they step you up and have amazing kind of expansion growth built into their, their model. So if, if you're starting a company now, like, like that's a great kind of uh, company to, to look at, look up to in terms of how it's done. Um, but yeah, I, I think about it all the time. I, I had a conversation with a, someone here who I highly respect in the Indianapolis um, community. And he had just gotten back from a conference about a year ago and, and was uh, super hyped about product-led growth. And I'm like, like, I got to learn more about this. And I've been pretty hyped about it ever since as well. So it certainly yeah. is a, a big part of, of the way that we're approaching things moving forward. Yeah, it seems like for your segment of the market or niche, the fundamental question is, would a operator of one of these facilities, whatever type it is, whether it's a sports facility or uh, a gym or do they intermingle or would they cross pollinate with each other? And can the product facilitate that? And in the absence of that, then would the users actually cross mingle or can you cross upsell? Like it goes back into, interestingly enough, some of your marketplace roots. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. We've cert I've certainly thought about the cross pollination from the, con we call it the client, the consumer side. That, that would be the people buying the services from the businesses that pay us for the SaaS fees. Um, I, I think it's a great point. It's something I definitely think about. And I think it's got uh, legs. I, these guys are, especially within, if you like look at the same segment, like baseball facilities as an example, 
they are like hyper competitive guys, like that run guys and gals that run these facilities. And yeah, I don't know. It's like baseball for some reason, like they're just super baseball and softball, super competitive people. So yeah, like going and telling the facility down the road about like, Hey, like upper hands, amazing software. Like you need to use it. That's never going to happen. No, they're, that's a competitive advantage is the way they look at that. And they don't want the other guy using it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's got a, it's got a, the whole kind of virality effect. And that's something that we need to pay attention to and, and crack the code on. We had the same uh, struggle. So when we were building out ToutApp, ToutApp was platform for salespeople. And ToutApp in itself was a competitive advantage for a sales team and a salesperson. And so we were like, damn it, they're going to keep this as their secret weapon. They're not going to tell <laughs> other people. And you want to know what the one thing that completely flipped that on its head was? Like you got me thinking about it salespeople just like your guys and gals are highly competitive so we put a leaderboard on and the minute they could compete on a leaderboard on who sent yeah. emails or who made more phone calls all of a sudden they didn't care about the secret weapon they forgot they wanted to compete and they literally sure. was like <laughs> fighting people in i want to have the number one number of dials or number one number of emails load it up baby let's go <laughs> I bet there's some sort of like, you know, all you need to do is put like the global leaderboard in Indianapolis for all baseball gyms and boom, like all of a sudden they're, yeah. they're like rushing to get on the platform. Play, play directly to the competitive juices. I love it. Yeah. I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to close on this. You are actively navigating what I call the Shawshank crawl to product market fit to the next stage of growth. And so is every single person listening to this show, founders just like us. So what's the one piece of advice you would give them that served you well as you're navigating this Shawshank crawl? Yeah, I think I'm going to try to limit it to one, but I might go to two, but the first, cause, cause I've done this for eight years now. So the first stage I alluded to this at the beginning, but it was, I got some like really brutal advice, especially when I was like, looking, I was still working at FactSet and I was like looking to make the jump to start the company. And I've got everyone who I care about telling me, don't do it. But my heart telling me to do it and my business partner, Kevin, telling me to do it all the time. And there was a, an advisor that we had down in, in Texas, actually down in Austin. And he said, he said, said this in a, a different way that I probably can't repeat here, but he basically was like, you need to rip the bandaid off and jump ship. If you yeah. don't do it now, you're never going to do it. Fast forward six years later, five or five or six years later, a good friend of mine, Denver Hutt, who passed away of cancer, her famous saying was, if not now, when? And so that's something that I actually got tattooed in my body and follow that kind of mentality, tried to follow that mentality with everything I do. So yeah, I guess I'll keep it to one. If there's that one big thing that, that you want to go after, um, you know, you can do two. It's, it's all good. We're not, we, we'll take as many as you got. So. <laughs> No, let's just leave it with that one. I okay. think that's good. Finish good place on that one. I think that's so true. Like, and that applies not just on when you're taking the plunge. It's for every stage. Like every stage, I think you got to sell. One of the one of the things that stuck with me, I, I learned this recently. I forget who it was from. I think it was Tony Robbins. He's like, you got to sell yourself on your goals every day. Like yep. you really do. You got to remind yourself. And I think at every inflection point of the business, you got to remind yourself, like, here's why I'm doing it. Here's how much bigger. And you got to sell yourself on it. And it goes back to, if not now, then when? Because uh, yeah. guess what? If you're the founder, there's no boss telling you what to do. So you have to set the pace and go to that next stage. So Absolutely. I think your advice applies just as much for every stage, every inflection point, that, and including starting, which is important just as much. Yeah, no, I, I could not agree more. I Hadn't really thought about it as it, go, it goes along, but it's something I think about nearly every day. So it definitely yeah. applies every stage of growth.
You better if you've got a tattoo on it. <laughs> Hard to forget about. <laughs> Miles, I want to thank you for joining. I truly enjoyed this conversation. This was awesome. I'm so excited to see you guys are doing from here on out for Upper Hand. Yeah, TK, I appreciate it, man. Great talking with you. Hey, one question before you hop, hop off here. We didn't talk, talk anything about scotch. What's your favorite bottle? Oh, my, it's true. So we keep doing these in the afternoon. Everyone has meetings, so we can't. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to actually host a clubhouse room where we just drink scotch, basically. My, yeah. my favorite is Lagavulin. Lagavulin scotch is like my absolute favorite. What, do you have one? You- Dalmore 12. I put it in the background so everyone, oh, everyone can see it there. That's yeah. awesome. I thought I saw a bottle there. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to, I think what we're going to do is get together everyone that's been a guest on the show, all the listeners into one big party and we're just going to drink scotch. And maybe awesome, the that- SAS involved, but we're all there because we learned about the SAS and now we're doing the scotch. So we're going to have to yeah. make up for it. It sounds um, like a helpful plan to me. Let me close out here. If you like this episode, please let us know by tweeting out this episode and mentioning us. There's a click to tweet link in the episode description. I'll include Miles's uh, contact information, his LinkedIn profile in the show notes along with a link to Upper Hand. You can go learn about them and everything that they're doing. If you got value from this, be sure to leave us a review. Also check out our YouTube channel where we post three videos a week on how to grow your SaaS business faster. I, and remember, lastly, everyone needs a strategy for their life and their business. When you are with us, yours is gonna be unstoppable. I'm TK and I'll see you in the next episode.